0: our system has not dealt with this in modern times. And it's not equipped to deal with somebody who is a bad faith actor who doesn't respect basic electoral processes and rule of law. So what do you do? I mean, you're going to need a mass movement.
1: 27 of Inside Without Now, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. As I record this, we are just three days away from the election. Armed thugs intimidate opposition candidate supporters, forcing their vehicle off the road and leading to the cancellation of their event. Here is sections of a thread on Twitter from Dr. Eric Cervini. I flew down to Texas to help with the Biden-Harris bus tour, intended to drum up enthusiasm at polling locations. Instead, I ended up spending the afternoon calling 911. See all these pickup trucks with Trump flags? They were sitting along I-35, waiting to ambush the Biden-Harris campaign bus as it traveled from San Antonio to Austin. These Trump supporters, many of whom were armed, Surrounded the bus on the interstate and attempted to drive it off the road. They outnumbered police 50 to 1, and they ended up hitting a staffer's car. The police refused to help. When I flagged down one officer, he said his hands were tied, not my jurisdiction. He was wearing a blue striped bandana. Understandably, though nobody was hurt, the rest of the tour was canceled. And as a historian who studied the rise of the Third Reich, I can tell you, This is how democracy dies. While Germany still had elections and Hitler was merely a disgraced politician, his militia of brown shirts interrupted his opponent's political meetings and incited violence on the streets. You know what happened next. You can read this full thread on Twitter, at Eric Servini. The fascists are mobilizing, moving to enforce a stolen election. All of us with a heart for humanity need to do what the German people didn't, Move in vast numbers to stop this. Yes, vote. And then get ready to take to the streets in mass sustained nonviolent protests. Today, while in Pennsylvania, Trump attacked the Supreme Court for their decision, allowing the extension date for mail-in ballots. Outraged that the election winner won't be known on November 3rd, he said, "'This is a terrible thing that they've done to our country. And that's the U.S. Supreme Court that I'm talking about. That's a terrible, political, horrible decision they made. You're going to have bedlam. We need to take these threats seriously. We need to mobilize to stop this fascist coup. Today, we are sharing a conversation I had with Anthony DiMaggio, author, counterpunch contributor, associate professor of political science at Lehigh University, and fellow Pennsylvanian on the stakes in this moment. Deadly denialism and where our hope and power lies. Anthony, I am so glad that you are joining us on Inside Without Now, special episode to get into fascism. Can we call it fascism? Should we be calling it fascism? And most importantly, what are we gonna do to stop this existential threat to all of humanity? And I'm so glad to have you with us.
0: Yes, thanks so much for having me.
1: One of the things that we've been doing since we launched this podcast during the pandemic, when the pandemics first started is when we launched this. And one of the things that we wanted to do was give people an opportunity to understand what it is that we face. And we call it fascism. And I was wondering, do you think that it's a fair assessment to call Trump fascist? And if so, why?
0: I do think so. I'm more interested in the threat poses to democracy than exactly what we call it, because a lot of this is a terminology issue. I think that if somebody wants to call it authoritarianism, full on, I'm fine with that. If somebody wants to call it fascism, fine with it. If we're talking about it strictly from an intellectual scholarly point of view, which I am a scholar uh, and also an activist, I prefer the term Henry Giroux uses, which is neoliberal fascism. And I think this is a practical issue because the United States of 2020 is not a carbon copy of of, uh, like Mussolini's Italy, right? Or Hitler's Germany under the Third Reich. We we don't have all the exact same features and what happens is that we make it too easy I think for historians and academics and intellectuals to say, "Oh, well, it's, someone's being an alarmist because whenever they bring up fascism, then, you know, you can instantly discount it." So what I have been arguing for a while now is that what the United States has is a hybrid. Someone like Donald Trump sees himself as the bridge between fascistic alt-right white nationalist Nazi uh, sort of Nazi neo-fascistic forces and the Republican Party. And so he's sort of trying to bring these things together. And it's a different kind of system than, you know, the historical fascist systems. It's not quite neoliberalism anymore. The good old fashioned neoliberalism of coded racism and corporate power, where polite society won't tolerate open racism. We can't say that we're in that anymore, that, that straight-up neoliberal system. But at the same time, it's not an exact carbon copy of the fascism of the 1930s and 1940s. So I think it's somewhere in between. You've got elements of these both, and I would call it neoliberal fascism. But whatever you want to call it, I think if we're not talking about authoritarianism and we're not talking about fascism, we're not in the ballpark of the right understanding of what's going on here, because a lot of intellectuals and a lot of activists use soft language. They like to say things like populism because it's an inoffensive term and oh, it's passion and it's it's outrage. And it's yeah, it it is those things. But it's so much more when you talk about threats to the basic rule of law, white nationalism, authoritarian dictator style politics. We need to stop being so polite and diplomatic, especially in a society that's rapidly falling into dictatorship style politics.
1: I think that's a really essential point, because what we see, you know, you talked about the shredding of the rule of law, you talk about overt, open white supremacy from the White House, nothing coded about it, talking about declaring people as subhuman, our immigrant siblings, so people coming from Muslim nations, we see a a road that we may not want to offend people but those in power are quite offensive. And what they're doing should offend people's conscience. And so if you don't want to offend somebody by using the F word, okay, but you better than still find a way to fight against it. And I think that if we look at Trump and we just see the ego, and we look at Trump and we just see the narcissism, and we look at Trump and just see the madness, all of those things are true, but just looking at them, actually doesn't point you in the direction to stop this atrocity, because it's not just about getting this man some mental health care. This is a fascist movement that seeks to erase the things that enable the right to dissent, that enable civil society. And I think that it's really important to, as you said, regardless of what phrase you might use, to be sounding the alarm around the danger that we're being confronted with.
0: And there's a lot of dimensions of this, too, that we should talk about, because, you know, I think that a lot of the time people can sort of get away with not being honest about the severity of the threat because they're not dealing with the specifics of of the way in which fascistic language and politics has really sort of fully permeated the American right. And a lot of the people who are denying this are people who aren't really engaged with the day to of, day of how this is happening, especially in right wing media.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by people that are not engaged with what's happening?
0: A lot of the academics I talk to, they're not paying attention to on the day to day basis, sort of the content coming out of right wing media, whether it's Rush Limbaugh or Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or Mark Levin or on InfoWars with Alex Jones. And basically these individuals have been adopting for at least the last 10 to 15 years what David Newart, the journalist, talks about as eliminationist rhetoric. And that's an old historical term that another historian came up with originally. But, you know, the idea of eliminationism is just authoritarian sort of rhetoric. You frame the world in very conspiratorial terms, you know, whether it's the language about deep state or Donald Trump talking about this alleged coup against him from Hillary Clinton. And basically, like every single story is framed in a way where the Democratic Party, liberals, the media are are sort of seen as this dystopian, total totalitarian threat to society and stability and if basically you know when you use that kind of language over and over and over it's very obvious that you have a notion of for how society should be run that's a one-party state because who could compromise with people when you talk about QAnon is a good example of this who are child molesting drinking the blood of children this Pizzagate QAnon sort of insanity right this kind of conspiracy stuff has taken over Uh, the American right on every level, whether they're talking about non-existent voter fraud or the QAnon stuff or this alleged coup that Donald Trump keeps talking about. And he's screaming on Twitter about how, you know, uh, Bill Barr needs to basically arrest Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Right. And he doesn't have any evidence of any of this stuff. And this ecosphere, this really right wing reactionary ecosphere, they've basically been uh, smuggling in fascistic rhetoric for the better part of 10 to 15 years now. And David Neward talks about that a lot in his book, The Eliminationists. You know, you don't notice these things if you're not paying attention. So these academics who tend to be pretty milquetoast, moderate to liberal, they don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. They don't watch Fox News. They don't follow any of this stuff. So they don't take it seriously because they're not being confronted with it day in, day out. And so it's sort of it's willful ignorance, really.
1: One of the things that we've been talking about in Refuse Fascism and trying to help people understand is right now we're, what, five days away from the election? And we've been talking with people about struggling with people to understand that Trump is already stealing this election. And people should vote. People should vote in record numbers. We should deliver a decisive defeat at the polls. But Trump isn't going to be stopped by our voting alone. I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about why that's the case and the theft, the election theft that is already well underway through trying to delegitimize mail-in ballots, to put into question things that are not questionable, that are not fraudulent at all. The way that he is facilitating a poll-watching army, his words, army, to intimidate voters, The fact that you have Black, Latinx, and Native voters already waiting in in record lines. And I wanted to get a sense from you of how do you see voter suppression already underway? What are the dangers that are being posed by this election that people should be paying attention to?
0: I think this is the culmination of a long process that's been going on for many years. I think it starts with felon disenfranchisement laws and voter ID laws that Disenfranchise millions of people. And that's what the polls from the Pew Research Center have shown that you're talking about millions of people who aren't able to vote because of these things. Overwhelmingly, poor people and poor people of color. I think that it gets worse when you see the fact that states, overwhelmingly, and particularly Republican states, but states in general, have failed. Oftentimes to extend dates for voting, despite the extenuating circumstances related to COVID and the fact that everyone wants to do mail-in ballots. I think that the very fact that you can't rely on the post office because it's been systematically defunded by design by the Trump administration is a part of part of voter suppression, because if you can't trust the post office, then people have to worry about whether their ballot's going to get to a state in time. And if the, if the dates for these ballots being received and counted aren't extended, then that makes it even harder. And you're already talking about, based on the very rules of the game, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of votes that aren't going to end up being Counted. So this is part of what you're talking about regarding this slow motion sort of attempt to steal the election and the actual theft. And then it gets even worse from there because, you know, that probably isn't going to be enough when you've got 9 to 10 percent of the population who says that they're not going to vote. It's a 9 to 10 percent gap, right, between what Trump and Biden, the, the gap between them in terms of what who people say they're going to vote for. So then it has to get even more heavy handed. You've got Donald Trump stoking p- paranoia about voter fraud and telling the Proud Boys and other fascistic groups to stand back and stand by. And I think everybody who has been paying attention to this knows that this is part of tr- Trump's typical M.O. Basically, what he does is he virtue signals to these fascistic groups, and then calls on them to sort of take action. And then, you know, you're living in a country where we have open carry and concealed carry. And then he's calling on these people to be poll watchers. And you can sort of connect the dots here and you can see where this is going to go. And so Donald Trump thinks that he's got sort of maximum leverage here to, uh, or freedom to gaslight. You can basically set all these things in motion and people can go do the dirty work for you. And then you can claim later when it gets ugly and nasty that you didn't tell people to do these things, but you've been setting it up the whole time by stoking the paranoia and, and virtue signaling to proud boy style groups and calling white supremacists very fine people, calling on them to flood voting facilities. And so this is where it gets really dangerous because you're talking about something even worse than vigilante style politics. For vigilante politics. It's the assumption that there was a wrongdoing, that someone's going to write. But this isn't even that. This is just like straight-up terrorism. If people are being harassed at polls by people engaged in open-carry intimidation with assault rifles, I mean, that's a terroristic level of militia-style violence that we've see. we seen a lot of in Michigan with the attempt to kidnap the governor and the attempt to occupy the, the Capitol building. And if none of this is enough... You've got Donald Trump saying that he's going to go to the Supreme Court and tell them to try and throw out any votes that don't come in on Election Day that come in after or are counted after. You're talking about millions of votes that would have to be thrown out. And he's also talking to state legislatures and saying, you know, if if I lose this state then just ignore the popular vote and hand me the electoral votes. Uh, So this is systematic voter suppression that's going on on so many different levels that realistically you're talking about the potential for millions of people to be disenfranchised and to not have the right to vote. And so that's the only way that you could steal an election where you've got almost a 10-point gap between the candidates. You have to do this on many different levels of intimidation and, and theft for it to work.
1: And now with this rammed through confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, it can also be done with that full cover of lawfulness, which makes it harder to to show the world the righteousness of the cause when it has the appearance that it's done lawfully, when it's done through institutions, when it's not as cut and dry of an illegitimate power grab. Well, the Supreme Court gave it its stamp of approval, I think is incredibly dangerous before we started recording, we had talked a little bit about some of the Miles Taylor revelations from his recent interview, where he was talking about some of the things that went on in the White House, things that he was told by Trump that should shock people's conscience. Do you want to share some of the things that struck you?
0: Miles Taylor is the former chief of staff for Donald. Trump and the Department of Homeland Security. He is the guy who wrote a whole book on Trump authoritarianism that was anonymous, and he becomes the anonymous author of that op-ed in the New York Times that's talking about how Donald Trump by his very nature is not just narcissistic and petty, but also authoritarian. And so the Trump administration was really angry about this. They were talking about the New York Times as treasonous. They were talking about Taylor as treasonous, but they couldn't figure out who he was because he was anonymous. So only recently he's come out and sort of stepped forward. And it's really interesting because he does this interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN. It's like an hour long interview. You can find the transcript if you if you looking, up online. And so basically what Miles Taylor does is he walks people through like what it's like to have a conversation with Donald Trump and exactly how the authoritarian and fascistic politics play out in real time. And it's really horrific. I can give you examples of this. Taylor talks about how Donald Trump just says to him straight up in the Oval Office, we want uh, you and Homeland Security and Border Patrol, we want people to be gassing, shooting and electrifying immigrants at the border. This is the exact words that that Taylor uses. And then Taylor tells him, Well, there are, are children and women on the border who will be disproportionately targeted and attacked. And Donald Trump says, Okay, well, just shoot them in the legs. So you've got someone like Taylor who's basically trying on the inside. to do as much damage control as he can by telling Donald Trump over and over and over that you can't do these openly authoritarian and fascistic things. Because you've got this rhetoric during your election about white nationalism, how Mexicans are drug dealers and killers and rapists. And it's not just rhetoric. You know, he's declaring a national emergency. He's stealing taxpayer funds that were never allocated by Congress to pay for a wall. He's got these concentration camp style facilities where people are being denied basic things like health care and basic sanitation, and they're being overcrowded into these facilities. You've got the child separation policy, right? And these things are just needlessly cruel and vindictive. And you can see on the inside, according to Taylor, it's not just rhetoric. Rhetoric and policy. And that's where the fascistic stuff comes in here, because Taylor talks about how you should take people from the border, Donald Trump tells him, and send them to sanctuary cities, because since we know all immigrants are killers and rapists and murderers, they'll they'll lead to violence spiking in those places and just send them to the sanctuary cities. And um, by the way, while you're at it, shut down the entire border. Don't let anybody come through. Immigration will be completely stopped coming into the United States. And then Taylor tells him, well, that's totally illegal. We can't just do that. And, you know, Donald Trump's response is just do it. I don't care. Just do it. And if you get in trouble, if you get arrested, I'll pardon you. You know, so this is the kind of language coming out of the White House where, You know, on the one hand, it's clearly blatantly white nationalistic sort of rhetoric. On the one hand, there's the rhetoric and then there's the actual policy. And then there's just the complete and utter disregard for the rule of law. So this is a president who basically what you're talking about at this point with regards to the Supreme Court or state legislatures with the election or the the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy with regard to immigration, the only thing that's standing between a full-on fully institutionalized, fascistic, white nationalistic authoritarian order. And I think standing between that and Trump is these people in government. And you're just sort of hoping on every different level that they don't listen to him. Like you assume Bill Barr is gonna ignore his screams on Twitter to arrest all of his political opponents. And you assume that immigration people are gonna ignore all these things he's saying to do at the border. And you assume the Supreme Court and state legislatures won't blatantly hand him an election. And this gets really dangerous because at at some point, especially if Donald Trump feels emboldened in the second term, if he feels emboldened after stealing an election, what's to stop him from just removing these people who aren't following orders and say, well, I'll get somebody in here who will do these things then. I mean, if he's been emboldened to steal an election, why would he feel not emboldened to do whatever he wants to incarcerate any of his critics or to fully institutionalize authoritarian policies?
1: I think that that danger cannot be (laughs) understated. I think that He's already done tremendous work to purge institutions within the government of people who do not adamantly express loyalty to him and his program. And so that, that purge is already well underway. And those who are in positions of power are the most loyal. I, I don't think we can count on Bill Barr to be anything but a fascist. Bill Barr, who is already threatening sedition those who take to the streets the night of the protest. I think that any reliance on these individuals is going to be ultimately extremely dangerous, proven the record thus far. I think that this is, as you said, not just rhetoric. And I think that that's a really important point. Some scholars, people who really do see themselves only as academic, removed from from what's happening in many ways that you were alluding to earlier, one thing that I've heard in conversations is he uses fascistic language or there's a fascistic tactic. And I can't help but have to bite my tongue at, well, what do you say to the 545 children who've been orphaned by this this regime? What do you say to to Muslims worldwide or people who live in Haiti? Part of a species who this fascist is threatening ecocide with I wrestle with how people can possibly just talk about it in in those kind of terms. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing to kind of reground people in, well, what is actually happening and what has actually happened.
0: And one interesting thing to add there is that along the lines of not connecting the dots, people have also missed the fact that, and you can see this in surveys if you look closely, roughly about one in five of Donald Trump's supporters openly ascribe to authoritarian fascistic politics. And so the reason why this gets sort of obscured is because people always like to talk about lone wolf shooters. But this whole idea of terrorism in America, right, you have thousands of people who've been murdered through mass shootings and other sort of violent events in the last couple of decades. And the overwhelming majority of this violence is right-wing. So they call them lone wolf shooters, but it's all part of the same sort of right-wing ideology. And actually, if you look at the survey data, it starts to make sense uh, in terms of being able to figure out what's been happening. Because 20% of Trump supporters, when they're asked in in surveys, this comes out of the Pew Research Center, they say that it's okay. They, They say this openly. They say it's okay and it's actually a good thing to use violence against civilians for political, religious, or social purposes. So part of this is religious. You know that you have like Christian sort of fundamentalist groups who think they could murder abor- abortion doctors or engage in other kinds of violence. Part of it's just you know militia groups in general. Part of it's just what they call the lone wolf sort of shooters. But this is all tied together by sort of fascistic ideology on the right a lot of times at the academics and other intellectuals, they might want to, this is seen as controversial. Oh my God, you're a partisan for the left if you focus on this on the right. But what the survey data and what the actual data from the FBI and Homeland Security and others show is that this is overwhelmingly a right-wing phenomenon because it's part of this fascistic politics that's been developing in the United States. And, And even the Pew survey is a good example. This kind of authoritarian language that I mentioned, Republicans and conservatives are twice as likely to say that stuff as anybody on the left. You know, they say it openly, they're saying it in surveys. This is one of the things that people are missing. When we talk about mass shootings in America and the very permissive gun culture that we have with concealed carry and open carry and all these shootings, people need to start connecting these dots because this thing is real and it's been there forever. And people just aren't sort of recognizing that this is tied together by right-wing fascistic overwhelmingly.
1: In light of that, in all that data, You still have many people that I've been in contact with still say, yes, it's dangerous, but this is just part of the normal pendulum swing. Somehow people can still say this kind of thing. And I just wanted to to read a couple sentences from one of your recent articles along these lines. You wrote, There has been much reluctance on the American left to discuss Trump's electioneering efforts and his politics more generally with reference to the threat of fascist politics. Most Americans assume it can't happen here, drawing on the famous title of Sinclair Lewis's seminal novel about the rise of fascism in a country that historically prides itself in democratic politics. US media discourse routinely downplays talk of fascism, preferring terms like authoritarianism or more innocuous sounding, populism to describe Trump's anti-democratic tendencies. And in the past week, even as some mainstream publications have run stories about Trump's fascist coup, have exposed the election theft underway, there still continues to be a playing of the horse race and the focus on the polls as if things are normal. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where do you think that comes from? What What is the root of that? And what do you think we do to change that very quickly? Because we need to change that very quickly. <laughs>
0: I think what it really comes down to is that you have to understand the ideological structure of the American political system and that, you know, you're not dealing with a serious opposition when you talk about these entities that are commonly framed in mainstream discourse as oppositional to the Republican Party. Whether we're talking about the Democratic Party or the mainstream media or academics, they all make very good punching bags for the American right who tend to frame academics as cultural Marxists or extreme lefties and the media as extremely left and the Democratic Party as radical socialists. And that's really not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a system in America where the Democratic Party under neoliberalism is extremely centrist to center right. Maybe there's liberal on some social issues, but really they're pretty moderate to right wing even, a conservative on economic issues. And so the problem here is that they're just not a strong opposition force. They're a very tepid opposition force when it comes to spotlighting the problem that has emerged with the Republican Party of extreme authoritarian fascistic politics. They just can't be relied upon. So what you end up seeing is that if we're talking about the mass media, like the New York Times just ran a couple major editorials against Trump saying he needs to go. He's dangerous. He's a threat to democracy. The terms they will not use in All of these editorials, they will not use the word fascism. They will not use the word authoritarianism. They'll use the word populism or dangerous or undemocratic, but they use soft language because they're afraid of being called out by the Republican Party for being biased or ignorant. And it's like, well, you know, I would hope you would be biased against fascism and neo-fascistic politics. And so, you know, you have a tepid spineless, sort of hollow opposition here in the media. The Democratic Party, people like Madeline Albright, who write a book called Fascism that doesn't talk about Donald Trump, which is really fascinating. And she's sort of the furthest you can go to being critical. And she doesn't even mention him. Joe Biden will call out the Proud Boys and Trump, but he won't say it's fascism. Obama will say in private conversations that Trump is a fascist, but he will not say it publicly. This is a tepid, sort of hollow resistance. Academics, don't feel comfortable using the word authoritarianism. Sometimes they will with regards to the American right and and Trump, and they definitely won't use the word fascism overwhelmingly. They like the soft language of populism. So what ends up happening here is you have groups of people who are supposed to be a real opposition to authoritarian politics and be principled, and they're framed as being really far left. They're really not. Uh, Most academics that I know, and I've been in academia for 20 years, so I know a few people, they are typically pretty closeted, milk toast. maybe a little democratic, maybe slightly liberal. They don't really uh, impose these things in a classroom. You never see it in their scholarship. If you get them cornered privately in a conversation, they'll admit that these things are happening and this is all very troubling, but they don't want to put themselves out there because academia has been so pacified and professionalized that people want to avoid saying anything that's controversial for fear of being noticed, for fear of being attacked. And so what you've got here is you've got a group of people whether you're talking about journalists or democratic political leaders or academics. And they, they don't want to admit to themselves that things are as bad as they've gotten because if they admit it, then it means they have to do something about it. And they are not of an ideological persuasion where they feel comfortable putting themselves out there as this sort of neoliberal centrist uh, part of the American political system. So they don't talk about it. And that means they don't have to deal with it. And what that means is that you can still have this fascistic stuff and and the the pulling of the Republican Party to the right. And it happens largely under the radar because nobody's calling them out on it. And so then the question that comes up is, what do we do about that? Because these groups have not shown, you know, whether it's the media or the Democratic Party or academics, that they're going to be part of leading the way in an anti-fascist effort. And so the question that, that we're sort of facing here is, where does that leave us? How do we make some kind of mass movement against fascist politics. And I think what we're talking about here, the scale of this, is that we're just gonna have to rely on average people to step forward where intellectuals and elites have failed, because if they're not going to be a a primary part of this resistance, then they're at best, they're going to be dragged along and it's going to have to be the average person that does this. So what we're really talking about, to the extent that there's a labor movement left in America, unions are going to have to, and and I've seen some reporting about this, how they've started talking about across the country, different labor unions, uh, how they're going to have to try and coordinate a national strike. If Donald Trump steals this election and, and when he tries to steal it, tens of millions of average people, activists, Black Lives Matter, civil rights activists, people in labor unions, average American workers, teachers professors, maybe they'll be a part of it. Students overwhelmingly are going to have to be the leaders on this because the professors aren't doing enough. You're going to have to have tens of millions of people and they're going to have to come together with these different groups of Americans and they're going to have to say that this country is going to be shut down. We're going to make this country ungovernable until this guy leaves. Because even if he loses... The election. Even if the Supreme Court tells him no, and the state legislators tell him no, he's still going to sit there in the White House and say, I'm not leaving because voter fraud. So then what do you do? You know, the military has said that they're not going to intervene. They're not going to try and get him out of there. Uh, so what do you do if he refuses to leave? I think that even in the best of scenarios, if he is soundly defeated and he isn't able to monkey wrench these votes, when you talk about the Supreme Court rulings and the state legislatures, even if all of that happens, the best of all worlds, he's just going to say that I'm not leaving because I'm the rightful victor. So what do you do at that point? Our system has not dealt with this in modern times, and it's not equipped to deal with somebody who is a bad faith actor, who doesn't respect basic electoral processes and rule of law. So what do you do? I mean, you're going to need a mass movement. You're going to need one to get him out of there. I think that's where we're at.
1: I couldn't agree more. In fact, that that type of mass movement is the reason why Refuse Fascism exists and is what we're about. There were a couple threads that you brought up that I just wanted to touch on real quick, and then I wanted to speak on on what's needed. The Democratic Party can't be relied on to be the opposition. They've proven that in word and mainly in deed. As recent as the Supreme Court, they should have never shown up at all. But by showing up, they legitimized the hearing. Showing up, not showing up the last day is a friggin' joke. So they cannot be relied on. And part of the reason why they can't be, in my opinion, is that if it's if it's between order or justice, they're going on the side of order and they fear more people in the streets rising up and calling people out and calling people into the streets and what that would uncork, then they actually fear the order of fascism. All of us who are on the side of justice need to not align with that mentality and i think that a lot of what you said about you didn't use these words but the the individualism and the parasitism that exists where people are it doesn't affect me i i'm not acting yet, I'm not affected. I'm gonna go along. It's not that bad. There becomes a time where it is going to affect you very quickly. It's affecting us all. And if you wait for it to come and get you, it's gonna be too late. You and I were talking earlier about if you wait for all the check marks of is this fascism to be checked off, there's gonna be able to be no resistance because it's gonna be fully locked down and fully consolidated. And then you're not gonna have a right to dissent. And I think that we're we're like in this really big crunch time where it's all hands on deck. The idea that if we admit what what we face and we fully confront it, we're compelled to act in that we're compelled to act in ways that are outside the official channels. We're compelled to act by taking to the streets that our action isn't voting. It has to be more than that. That's something that Americans aren't used to doing. They're used to politics by proxy and they're not used to having to take things into their own hands to come into the streets. And I think that we are in a situation, particularly while we can't completely rule out that there won't be something that happens that causes the dam to break before the election and millions pour into streets, that isn't likely right now. And so we need to be preparing for the momentous struggle if Trump cries the election a fraud, attempts to shut down counting the votes, or in other ways seeks to nullify the election, which is extremely likely. And Refuse Fascism is calling for people to be in the streets immediately after that, that the first five days not go unopposed, that the demand Trump pens out now needs to be everywhere, and that people from all walks of life be in the street delegitimizing what is always illegitimate. Fascism, And through this process of people being in the streets in massive numbers, in nonviolent protests, um, not just reactive to the regime's moves or to the democratic leadership's calls to let the process play out, but to insist on the removal of the regime, then the processes and institutions could be forced to respond. The academics who right now may not be acting in the way that they need to be. The journalists who may not be doing what they need to do now, the, the rulers um, most aligned with the Democratic Party who aren't acting now could be forced to concede to our demand that this regime must go. And I just wanted to, to get any thoughts you have on what people should be doing in these final days. What does it mean to, to prepare for this type of struggle?
0: What I think complicates this greatly is, you know, the fact that an anti-fascist movement in the United States is really sort of in its infancy because Americans don't like this idea of it can happen here. So you have ideas, Antifa, where people do come together and have come together with Antifa. You have groups like Refuse Fascism, but you're you're sort of at the inception point, you know, the the sort of beginnings of this activism, and it's going to have to grow a lot really quickly. And I think that the real challenge in the United States is that after 40 years of neoliberalism liberal governance than any sort of progressive institutions that used to exist, like the schools, universities, labor, American labor, they've been so hollowed out that it's going to be a real challenge to get people together. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible. I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do our best as a society to work with the institutions that we have. And, and you know, so obviously refused fascism is a really important part of this and needs to be, but also what's left of American labor and Black Lives Matter protests as well. And the community organizations that have come together around that are going to have to be remobilized and redirected to this cause. And that is starting to happen. I think that particularly with regard to Black Lives Matter, I think you've got a really large, latent group of people who could be mobilized really quickly, even if the organization is not as sort of clear-cut. It depends on the community, because there's different groups of people, because it's so decentralized. But we do know this, that, you know, there are certain groups of Americans particularly with Black Lives Matter, who could be relied upon to come together really quickly and spontaneously. Because from the surveys that have been done, you're talking about around 25 million people in the spring, to around spring to June to summertime, who came together across different American communities to protest under Black Lives Matter. I've actually done some research on this, and I've been a participant in social movements for really the last 20 years, including civil rights activism and anti-Trump activism. And so what you can see if you go to these rallies, Black Lives Matter rallies, anti-Trump protests, and if you look at some of the survey data that's been collected too that we now have nationally, you've got certain groups of people who are going to have to be at the forefront of this anti-fascist push. And typically these are people in surveys, or if you go to these protests in person, you see there's typical demographics that show up time and time again. People tend to be overwhelmingly younger. There's a lot of people who do identify as Democratic Americans. Now, that's different to say that someone is an American votes Democratic versus the Democratic Party apparatus. I think there's a lot of well-meaning people in the Democratic party, uh, average rank and file Americans who have to be mobilized. These people are going to have to be a part of the solution here. They're going to have to be dragged toward a, in a more progressive direction here. There's a lot of people in America, friends of mine, people I know who I talk to, and people are going to have to do this through social media and through direct networks who are highly educated. They may not be professors who have generally failed on this issue, but people in general who are highly educated and have a problem with a society where we live in a dystopia where everything is post-truth and reality is whatever Donald Trump tells you it is because they have, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and they have a problem with this Orwellian sort of nightmare style society. And and these are the people, as I mentioned in surveys and when you go to these protests of, of Trump who you see over and over and over again, people who identify as Democrats, people who are younger, people who are liberal, people who are highly educated, African Americans, this is another important profile when you look at Black Lives Matter and anti-Trump protests. So these people are going to all have to come together. We have a challenge here where the institutions are not where they need to be because they've been hollowed out by all these decades of neoliberal sort of demobilization. But fortunately, we have one, I think, really important thing to help us here. And it's not social media. That's a secondary thing. Yes, the social media outlets can be mobilized, and they have been, as we saw with Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. They can be used for a progressive purpose, even though these are corporations that are out to make money. I think the real thing we have, the real weapon we have is American culture. We have an American political culture where protest has been mainstreamed in the last 10 to 15 years, more so than at any other point that we've seen in the last 30 to 40 years. And we're talking about levels of protest, wave upon wave of protest that we've seen in the last 10 years, that the only thing that rivals it in modern American history is the 1960s with civil rights, with the anti-war protest, with women's rights. And so that is a huge sort of virtue, so to speak, that we have, that, that people... Because the culture has changed so much and become so much more open to protest as a mainstreamed method of political expression, that You don't have to build that. That's already there. So the fact that we have these institutions that are not as strong as they need to be, whether we're talking about labor, the Democratic Party, or or educational institutions, you do have the sort of sentiment that is there. So I think at this point, we're going to have to sort of work with what we have. And my hope is that Black Lives Matter can be sort of a focus point where people who have been behind that movement within communities, whether you're talking about social justice groups or religious organizations or American labor unions, that they can be brought together around this mainstream culture of protest. And I, I think that's the best hope here. You know, we're talking about you're going to need tens of millions of people in order to shut down American cities and, and sort of make the country ungovernable in order to get rid of this president if he refuses to leave and when he refuses to leave.
1: That was Anthony DiMaggio. You can read his articles at Counterpunch. Thanks for listening to Inside Without Now. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest and follow us on social media at Refuse Fascism. Tonight, Sunday, November 1st, tune in on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter at 7 p.m. Eastern Time for a Refuse Fascism Live for everyone who feels the urgent need to end the nightmare of the Trump-Pence regime. How to prepare for what happens on election day. With Election Day upon us, no one can predict exactly what will happen. What we do know is the air is thick with threats from Trump and his followers, that there will not be a peaceful transfer of power. We have witnessed Trump declare the vote will be announced election night and lie about the legitimacy of mail-in ballots. Refuse fascism has for four years seen this coming and is a plan that meets the existential challenge of this moment. Four more years of a regime that imperils the people of the world and the planet itself is not an option. Fascism is never legitimate. Join Andy Z, co-initiator of RefuseFascism.org and host of the RL show, along with myself, will be presenting Refuse Fascism's plan for the election and how you can organize people to be in the public square on election night, watching the returns with the Refuse Fascism team and being together for whatever happens. Learn about plans for the publication of the pledge to the people of the world in the name of humanity we refuse to accept a fascist America as a full page ad in the New York Times. $50,000 is needed by Wednesday at noon to make this happen. Join Andy and myself and bring your friends. No experience necessary. Just a love for humanity and determination to not stop until they're gone. Hope to see you tonight in the name of humanity. We refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump, Pence, out now. See you on the live and in the streets.